welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Cronin. And I'm Justin Clark. And today we're discussing the future of finance. That means we'll be discussing the future of investing, the future of personal finance, the future of how to fund a business, also disruptive technologies like blockchain, cryptocurrency, high frequency trading. And lastly, we'll get into the future scenario. So how will the global economy and the U.S. economy likely change in the future and in the worst case, best case and most likely scenarios? So to start out, I think investing is a good place to begin. And I'd like to ask you about what are some of the different investing philosophies? Yeah, so I mean, there's there's two major philosophies. There's passive investing, where basically people just set their money aside into something like an index fund, where they don't have to touch it. And the people and the index fund itself is not actively trying to pick stocks or anything else. It's really just choosing a collection of let's say tech stocks to build a tech index. And just the growth of that that index is the growth kind of of that sector as a whole. So it's kind mm-hmm. of a way to perform um, on par with the market without having to really think about it. Um, and there's a lot of benefits to that. Like if I know we've both read um, common, a common sense guide to investing um, and listened to uh, the philosophy of John Bogle, the yeah, yeah. Vanguard Bogleheads, Bogleheads yeah. Guide to Investing is another version yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a um, there's a whole philosophy around this and it tends to be the best sort of um, philosophy and investment strategy for a lot of young people or people just getting into investing. Right. And Um, for any of our listeners, you've probably heard the advice that you need to diversify when you invest. mm -hmm. And index funds are the the farthest extent that you could possibly diversify because you're basically just buying a share in the entire U.S. stock market, the entire international Mm -hmm. stock market and the entire U.S. bond market. And John Bogle recommends those three index funds as the only three funds you would ever need to invest in. Yeah. And it's really cool too. Um, So Vanguard in particular, and you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of index funds out there, but some index funds are, they're sort of lifestyle funds. So they're designed for people that are 20 years old right now and um, will be, you know, it'll be a, really long-term, maybe a little bit higher growth, higher risk investment with more stocks rather than bonds because bonds tend to be a little more stable. Right. Um, so there's just like different breakdowns depending on risk tolerance and age. Because if you're, if you're older, you don't want to have a super risky portfolio. It's more about wealth preservation than wealth generation. Right. And a really good rule of thumb that, John, or that Jack Bogle gives is the age rule. So basically, whatever your age is, that's the percentage you should have in bonds. So if mm-hmm. you're 27 years old, you should have 20% of all your assets in bonds. And then as you get older, if you're a 65-year-old, you should have the majority of your, mm-hmm. of your funds in bonds because it's, you know, you're not looking for big risks when you're at that age. You just want to have more of a stable uh, mm-hmm. nest egg. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's a lot more that I think we could get more into some index funds and maybe we bring it up later, but just to kind of finish up the question, um, the next philosophy is 
active funds or active investing, where basically you invest in, let's say, a fund or something else, like a, a mutual fund, for example, where the people that work at this mutual fund are actively trying to pick stocks that will go up yeah. in the future or sell stocks that are going to go down in the future. And the problem with these now, it, you know, active actively managed funds kind of boomed in the 80s and 90s um, when there was probably a, a lower velocity of information um, and fewer people in the space in general. But they tend to underperform the market Right. And even if the returns themselves, like the raw returns of these funds are a little bit higher than the market, the fees that you have to pay typically to actively manage funds are ridiculous mm -hmm. because there's way for this fund to operate. They need to pay hundreds of traders to, you know, do their thing. And typically the compensation packages are fairly high for these people. Right. Um, and, and the so likelihood you, of one of these actively managed funds outperforming a passive index fund like Jack Bogle recommends are very small. So in the first year, if you are A-B testing an index fund versus an actively managed fund, there's about a 40% chance that the actively managed fund will outperform the index fund. And mm -hmm. every subsequent year, that likelihood goes down to by the time you're 10 years out, there's less than a 1% chance that the actively managed fund will outperform the index fund. So for, yeah. for anyone listening to this, if you're new to investing, the simplest advice that, not that I can give, but that Jack Bogle can give, who Warren Buffett said has done more for the individual investor than anyone in history. So this guy is le legit. Yeah. He recommends use the age rule for bonds keep 15 to 20% in international stock market, and then put the rest into the total US stock market. So you have three index funds, and you just have to look at it once a year to make sure you've got the right um, split between the three. And then that's a pretty much a sure recipe for success in the long term. Yeah, and the, the thing that people need to keep in mind too is it's very, easy to be driven by emotions when it comes to investing. So if you see that the stock market crashes, what you'll want to do is like, oh shit, I need to get out of this. Yeah. But no, that's the absolute worst thing you can do because you bought high and you sold at the absolute lowest. If you really want to do something a little bit, you know, crazy, but possibly fairly good returns is you buy when the market crashes because everything is super cheap. Right. You know, obviously don't, we're not investment advisors, so do all yeah. the research for yourself. But you know, but that's why the Bogleheads' advice is: stay the course, invest yeah. early and often, Always. and stay the course. And even if you time the market as horribly as you possibly could with investing, the longest that there will ever be a really bad economic, at least based on historic data, is about ten years, a decade, and they refer mm -hmm. to it as a lost decade. That's like if the in the worst possible scenario. But if you're planning for long term, like for retirement, then as long as you just invest early, keep investing often. Like I know for myself, I have an automated every month at the end of the month, a thousand dollars gets invested into my Vanguard fund. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the fiscal year, I just make sure I have the right proportion of international US and bonds. 
-hmm. And then even if you have a negative return in a 10-year period, which is pretty much the worst case scenario, then over 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, by the time you're going to need it for your retirement, the odds of it still being negative are basically zero. And if you did lose all of your money, that would mean that the whole stock market went under. And that basically means that, okay, there's nuclear war, there's zombies, (laughs) like money does, nothing matters anyways. So it's like, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So one other thing, too, that I wanted to add to the um, active investing discussion is there are definitely funds that can actively invest. Um, So one huge example is Renaissance Technologies, founded by James Simons uh, back in the late 80s, I think. But it's it's kind of that uh, he was one of the first quant hedge funds, um, which is sort of the hedge fund of the future. Like Mm -hmm. it's all. Um, algorithmic based but his fund the medallion fund which it performed so well that they returned all of their investors money and now it's just internal people invested Mm. there but it's roughly i think over the course of 30 years it's returned roughly 30 percent per year on average and is that mostly from high frequency trading or um i believe they they probably do some sort of high frequency trading, but high frequency trading isn't that profitable anymore, um, mm. like today. So they they're doing something else too. But they they have hundreds of one of the things that they they pride themselves on is they have hundreds of PhDs and they put they discount the um, merit of a finance expertise instead they they like to have people that are um, experts in math or physics or something that Hmm. isn't finance because it kind of gives uh, the fund a different perspective on the dynamics of the market and maybe maybe a little bit more uh, quantitative aspect to it whereas finance is more about traditional investing and obviously traditional investing active traditional investing Right. does not tend to work. So they're, you know, they're doing a completely different approach to this whole thing. And we should talk a little bit about how these quantitative hedge fund companies have come into existence and sort of how the broad trends have been shaping up for different financial institutions. Because mm-hmm. if you think about it from our parents' generation, like what the finance industry was like when they were our age, really it was... A lot of people had a 401k where the employer would contribute and then these 401k or pension funds would be managed by active hedge fund managers Mm -hmm. and they would take their fees. There was a lot of smoke and mirrors around how much people were actually paying to the hedge fund managers because finance Mm -hmm. is something that's a little bit complex so it's easy for them to kind of hide you know, how much they're actually collecting in fees and what they're actually Mm -hmm. doing. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people got really screwed with their 401ks and their and their pension funds. And a lot of people didn't even know they were getting screwed, that they basically thought that they were everything was going fine. But because of the emergence of things like high frequency trading, and some misaligned incentives, oftentimes, what would happen is that the individual investor would get a shortcut 
compared to the actual brokers and dealers. So when someone would put in a trade and this, you know, started around the, um, you know, 2000s, not, not that, that long ago, mm -hmm. uh, that's when it got really big was when someone does a trade, like, let's say I want to buy, you know, a hundred thousand shares of Amazon. I mean, I guess that's mm. a lot of money, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if I wanted to put in that order, what used to happen is you would see, okay, a hundred thousand shares of Amazon are available at $2,000 a share. And then you click purchase and then you get exactly what you expected to get. You get a thousand, hundred thousand shares for $2,000 a share. But mm -hmm. once these high frequency trading algorithms came into prominence, what would happen is you'd press enter and you wouldn't even get all 100,000 shares. And then you would end up actually paying a slightly higher price than what was quoted between the spread of, you know, the minimum and the maximum, it would tend mm -hmm. to be slightly higher. And the reason why is that people, high frequency traders had a speed advantage so they could see when there was an demand for a certain stock and then they would yeah. buy up that stock to drive up the price and then sell it to them at the slightly higher price and then yeah. sell off and take the difference and so yeah. essentially these high frequency traders were not put uh were not experiencing any risk themselves and yeah. they were basically just exploiting the individual investor who had a slow normal connection whereas these companies would pay hundreds of millions of dollars to put fiber optic cables right <laughs> towards the stock exchanges, like get yeah. the fastest possible connection so they could undercut everyone else. And this had been a huge issue until people started to figure this out. And, mm -hmm. you know, in the book Flash Boys, they talk about how now there are institutions that actually implement some level of fairness where they'll make sure that the trades go at the same speed to every different every different exchange so that no one yeah. can undercut them so essentially they're slowing down the speed so that it'll go to all the exchanges at the same time so that it's impossible to get undercut and so i yeah. guess that's why now high frequency tracing isn't as po uh, popular as it was in the past which is a good thing for any individual investor yeah i mean the high frequency trading is it's a really interesting thing that happened kind of like you said they like someone could put out an order first and then since the high frequency traders are so fast they see that order and react afterwards but can take action before an order actually goes through drive up the price ultimately hurting the end user um that's so i would i would at least want to differentiate quantitative hedge funds or quantitative trading with um, high frequency trading because right. there's a spectrum there's a spectrum yeah of it's speed. electronic trading yeah and then pretty beneath much. that there's the subset of high frequency and then more that's just like you know a really intelligent programmatic way of trading like betting on the volatility as opposed to the price and yeah yep so the um like there's it would be considered quantitative trading if you had a program that looked at stock market data made decisions and just emailed you to tell you, you know, what stocks to trade manually or something. So that's like one end of the spectrum. And then again, on the other end, you have the high frequency trading where there's almost no oversight. And these, these high frequency trading firms can place thousands or 
maybe even tens of thousands of orders at the same time. Whereas if you were, if you were trying to do that manually, that would be completely infeasible. You would need to have like one employee per trade that needs to be out there basically. Yeah. Uh, And I find it really interesting to see what the financial market looks like from the computer's perspective, because when you look at it with human eyes, I mean, even like the blink of an eye is something like 20 milliseconds or, or I forget how yeah, many yeah. milliseconds, but it's, it's like fairly slow compared to the speed at which human or, uh, at which computers trade. And so when humans are looking at a stock market, it looks fairly stable. But if you zoom in into the millisecond, into the microsecond, into the nanosecond, there is so much going on that a millisecond in time is like years in computer time based on how long that seems to them and how narrowly they're able to focus on like changes at the nanosecond level. Yeah. And the, the other thing too, to maybe point out is how high frequency trading firms even make money in the first place, Mm -hmm. uh, because they don't necessarily make money on the direction of the stock prices. What tends to happen and what a lot of exchanges have is if you add liquidity to the market then you get a little bit of a rebate for yeah they'll pay you to trade with their exchange yeah because you're so there's a bid and an ask for every stock or every every security that you want to trade so what price do people want to buy it at and what price people want to sell it at is a little bit different mm-hmm. so if you can buy it at a sort of unfavorable price or at a favorable price to you. Like if you're selling near the ask price, then you're adding liquidity to the market or, or um, tightening the bid ask spreads, which is ultimately good for liquidity overall Mm -hmm. um, in the market. So what exchanges will do is just give you a little bit of a rebate and you sometimes hear about market makers. Like that's sort of what they do. Market makers used to be more manual, but now, market makers are they tend to be these high frequency trading firms right Um, but I think the key when I think about high frequency trading is that they're not adding any value to the economy all they're doing is undercutting people and making the system more complex and less efficient than it needs to be it's a way of gaming the system and exploiting like gamers will use the word exploits of how to you know, get what they want in a way that's many would consider cheating. And I think that for economic stability, we need to get rid of ways of exploiting the system because it just exacerbates the problem and the, the gulf between the haves and the have nots income inequality, the people who already own financial assets versus the people that don't. And the more that there are ways for people to exploit the system, that gap widens and we're, you know, I'm, we'll talk more about this as we get into the future scenarios, but there are a lot of economic indicators that are similar to what we had in the 1930s before Hitler rose to power. And mm-hmm. if we're not careful, there could be some very serious repercussions from continuing along the path that we're on, which allows people at the top to continue gaming the system to take fractions mm-hmm. of a penny millions of times over from individual investors, retirees, pensioners, all the people that 
don't have the same level of market information and market knowledge as the people who run a lot of these hedge funds and, and trading firms. Yeah, well, so I'll add something else that's maybe a little bit of a different perspective. So with high frequency trading firms, the at least right now, the ultimate losers are not necessarily the individual investors. It's more the um, the other funds in the market that aren't high frequency trading firms because we're not out there going and buying a whole bunch of stocks over and over and um, really who's getting hurt are the other actively managed funds who are but aren't losing some money. of those actively managed funds owned like the actual money is owned by individuals retirees pensioners often yeah, not always I don't know what the breakdown is of actively managed funds and um, passive it like index funds are but I think that a majority of this at this point are in passive investing strategies or long-term investing strategies where you're not like quickly buying and selling mm. um, so the other the other I think counter argument to high frequency trading and even active trading so high frequency trading firms really just found some way to they found a little edge in the market, whatever that edge is. But the same thing could be said for actively managed funds as well. They, if if you're a good actively managed fund and you found an edge, you're making money based on buying and selling, not necessarily adding any value to the market. Mm -hmm. You're just buying and selling based on what you think is going to happen. Um, yeah, it's They're, like an it's arms sort of race between all of the actively managed funds. and Yeah. I mean, that's the interesting thing about these funds is that they're all computers and algorithms networked together, trading with one another. And it's good to look at some cases that are more extreme for how this could pan out in the future. Like, for instance, the 2010 flash crash where... Mm -hmm a single share of P&G went from $100,000 to $0 in a fraction of a second. And clearly, the actual value of Procter & Gamble did not hmm. go up or down to that degree. What happened yep. is these, these uh, programmatic algorithms were basically trying to undercut one another and it just kept happening to the point where it went like all the way down and then all the way up. And we still yeah. don't really know exactly like what, what caused it. It's, it's, it's very difficult to know exactly how it happened and how to prevent it. But it's definitely the case that this was the result of algorithms trading with one another and creating artificial demand and artificial mm -hmm. um, supply. And yeah, I think yeah, that happened too to a high frequency trading firm individually like they they had some strategy where they you know when they're placing hundreds or thousands of orders every second they had yeah. this cascading effect where one decision affected the market in some way and then it led to another decision which continued to drive down basically they continually bled out money right for you know 10 minutes but that drove their hedge fund from like in the billions to in the low millions so like right. one i think they lost 90 percent of their overall value because this algorithm went haywire i wish yeah. i could remember the name of the fund 
And I believe uh, the way that they finally fixed it was that they just turned it off and turned it on again. <laughs> like yeah, like yeah, they paused it for a fraction silly. of a second and then it sort of recalibrated and it was fine. But that's what's the most terrifying about the financial markets as they are today as compared mm -hmm. to the past is that there can be some very sudden changes that are driven by algorithms as opposed to human behavior and human inclinations mm -hmm. that can wipe out someone's life savings in the fraction of a second. And fortunately, we've rebounded, like the flash crash recalibrated and everything was more or less fine afterwards. But it's not out of the question that we could have some market crash and then it not rebound. Like for instance, imagine if there was some really intelligent AI in the future that realizes that the way that we've been valuing certain assets is not accurate and therefore like starts to trade lower and the other algorithms do and like maybe the whole market is not as high a value as it currently is being valued at and mm -hmm. if the algorithms figure that out and then it all goes down and then it doesn't rebound i'm not saying this is going to happen i'm just saying we don't know the possibilities but there's a lot higher chance for drastic changes when you have algorithms tied together than when it's just based on like the normal workings of the world. Yeah, well, so I would say that it's probably more due to the speed of the algorithms. And with humans, probably the same conclusion would be reached if there was a huge overvaluation like there potentially is right now mm -hmm. um, with companies. The algorithms will just figure it out faster and the crash will be faster. I think... Right. I don't know if that would have an effect. On yeah, no, I mean, there is an rebounding for the algorithms making the market much more stable and much more accurate. So yeah, and that's kind of where I was. If it's fair. If, it's, if there's no one undercutting anyone else, everyone goes to the markets at the same speed. If that's mm -hmm. the case, then yeah, it may be much more stable and much wiser to have these algorithms trading rather than humans with our logical whims and trying to instinctively wanting yeah. to sell in a bear market and buy in a bull market and... right yeah it basically is a way to get around our super impulsive reptilian yeah. brains and be completely rational um, yeah i don't know if you're comfortable but do you want to talk a little bit about your the way that your hedge fund works because it is interesting that i don't know if you're able yeah. to or not but I, i'd be fascinated to hear sort of how your hedge funds algorithm combats some of the human tendencies that we were just discussing. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll try to stay as, as broad as possible, but um, basically with, a, with some, a couple of guys, I started a hedge fund. It's, it's technically a quantitative hedge fund. We write computer programs that'll trade in the market for us. Um, but what we're not doing is like stock picking. Mm -hmm. And try we we found kind of this niche area of the market that we really understand, and we focus on that completely. We don't try to do the basic, you know, the picking the direction of the market because nobody knows. Right. What we're doing is something more along the lines of volatility trading, and um, I think the broad category of our strategy would be volatility arbitrage it's which i think is also a subcategory of statistical arbitrage mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean we 
the whole philosophy that we have is building up everything in your portfolio to work with each other. So we have, if you've ever heard of modern portfolio theory, which is basically um, the standard way to develop a diversified portfolio that maximizes um, a sharp ratio, which is essentially just your average returns over the volatility of those returns. So the higher the sharp ratio, the either the more stable or the higher growth or both uh, an investment is. So with modern portfolio theory, you basically see what the correlations between everything in your um, portfolio are and um, what the expected returns of those mm-hmm. things are. So There's you're basically of- betting on the volatility and if there is some market crash or recession, it may actually be easier to measure the volatility and therefore your fund may do better in yeah. a more volatile time. Whereas most people will be scrambling and frantic in a volatile time. Yeah, we would we would greatly enjoy a, at least the, the fund would <laughs> the the fund would be it would be um yeah. probably probably in a good position in a bear market. Um, I mean, it, it can, it's, unco- it's designed to be uncorrelated with the market in general. Okay. So it doesn't really matter um, what, and the technical term for that is zero beta. Beta is just like what the correlation is with the, the stock market. So if it's a, if your beta is one, you have a one-to-one correlation with mm-hmm. the stock market. If you have a three beta, that means that for every 1% increase in the market, yours increases 3% and every 1% decrease, yours decreases 3%. Right. Um, so we want a beta of zero, which means hmm. it doesn't matter what the um, stock market is doing. We will, you know, ours will just do its own thing, whether it's going up or down. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah. So that, that was, that was sort of vague, but um, no, that's, that's, that's great. <laughs> I mean, it's useful to have funds like that that aren't, tied to the same sort of metrics that most funds are, because I feel like that kind of adds to the stability of the overall market when there are some people betting on volatility as opposed to price. And Yeah, and every so for every fund out there that finds its own edge, it's adding a little bit more efficiency to the market. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's There are markets that are more efficient than others. Like, for example, the stock market is pretty efficient. Um, mm-hmm. It's really hard to make, and that's why it's really hard to make money, is because there isn't really much of an edge. Um, there are more niche markets that are less, um, they're less efficient, so there are more opportunities to find these sorts of edges. Right. And there is one thing I just want to touch on as far as investing, and then we can move on to personal finance, and that is commission free trading. Because this is something that was not available even 10 years ago. And my favorite tool is Robinhood. And you yep. can download the app. You can pick individual stocks. And as we said, we do not recommend getting too enthusiastic about picking individual stocks because it's a yeah. much higher risk. But let's say you've already taken Boglehead's advice. You've got most of your money in U.S. stocks, bonds, international stocks. Mm-hmm. If you want to have some fun, and if you really yeah. believe in certain companies, right. then you can use Robinhood to buy shares of Amazon or Apple or Tesla or whatever company you feel like 
has a really good chance of winning in the long run. Mm-hmm. And I also really like uh, Steve Jervison's advice about staying with your picks. So if you pick certain yeah. companies, don't like sell and buy frequently. Like make a bet on a company. Like say, you know Long-term. what? I really think Apple is going to be around for the next 30 years and they're going to keep developing amazing technology and I'm going to invest in Apple, but I'm not going to sell if it starts to go down. And if you take that approach with with all of the companies that you really believe in, some mm-hmm. of them will go to zero, but those will be offset by the ones that go way up in value. And yep. so I think just minimizing the level of like trading as a result of emotions or you know whatever you're seeing on the charts if you can get away from that and focus more on which companies do you believe in mm-hmm. long run then and you do commission free trading so you're not giving over some percentage to some stockbroker who may as well be a chimpanzee throwing a dartboard at a <laughs> a dart at a dartboard yeah. then you'll be better off than the majority of individual stock picking investors. Yeah. Yeah. That, so have you heard of how uh, Robin Hood actually makes money or like a decent chunk of their money? It's no. Well, I know they have Robin Hood premium or Robin Hood gold. Where... Yeah. Well, so the, the way that they make money from individual orders uh-huh. is by selling your trades to high frequency trade. <laughs> so you um, are getting screwed, but it's only a couple no, pennies. No, no, no. Uh, no? you're you're not getting screwed. You it's actually better for the um the investor because one, they're not paying commissions. So if you were right. trying to make these trades with Charles Schwab, it's typically like anywhere from five to fifteen dollars per trade. Like it's yeah, stupid, some absurd. of these brokers. Um so the ones that are actually losing out are the other actively trading firms because the high frequency trading firm is going to go and place the order at not necessarily the market price. It's actually going to try to get good fills on these orders. Hmm. Um, so you you can go and you know get an actual a good uh, price on something, whereas typically you're taking the market price, which is the most unfavorable and you're paying a commission. So it's actually better for the individual. It got a lot of bad press back mm-hmm. in, I think, I forgot when it when people um, figured it out or when they released it, but I think it was late 2018. Um, right. but, but that's probably mostly because of the, the negative um, press related to high frequency trading firms. But they, right. you know, it's, it's, it's easier to just jump to the conclusion that Robinhood is bad or selling your data and making right. their evil. Well, the thing people need to realize is that even when people get quote unquote screwed by high frequency traders, it's relatively small fractions of the value of the overall stock. And if you are investing in the long run, like you're buying Amazon, not so you can sell it tomorrow, but because you think it's going to be worth a lot more in 30 years then it's not that big of an impact. And when you compare the downside of maybe getting a little undercut with the upside of not having to pay any commissions, then it definitely is better than the alternative. Yeah, yeah. And so one one other thing before we get into personal finance too to talk about is um, there are other types of investing that aren't just stock market and bond market investing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so there's there are things like gold there are thing there are alternative investments like real estate i don't know if that's technically alternative but there's yeah. also there's a real um, estate index fund in vanguard yeah yeah so it's that's one um asset that tends to be uncorrelated with the market um mm-hmm. obviously if you don't look at 2008 but right uh, there's and then and then there's also stuff like peer-to-peer lending with lending club um mm-hmm. so and you anyways, can also invest in crypto and we can get more into that later yeah and um, that's kind of what i wanted to say too is uh there's there's this talk about value investing so investing in assets that are productive intrinsically that mm-hmm. have intrinsic value so something like a cryptocurrency or even gold don't have intrinsic value because the asset itself gold by itself does not produce right. anything you right. can convert it into jewelry or something but um and then same thing with cryptocurrency it doesn't actually produce anything in of itself it has value because humans say it has value mm-hmm. and it's all based on our like psychologically whereas a dividend stock does have intrinsic value because you're buying something that's producing a sort of income with by giving dividends to investors or real estate it goes up it appreciates in value but you can also earn rents from Mm -hmm. it and and the land itself can generate some sort of value so there's you know value investing is sort of an extension uh or it's sort of a way to think about your passive investments Mm -hmm. so things passively investing in things that have intrinsic value tends to be another good way to look at things yeah yeah totally and we're going to get more into what we think about cryptocurrencies and blockchain in the Mm -hmm. disruptive technologies part but i'd like to talk now about personal finance because this is something that unless you were a business major you probably didn't learn about it in school and yet it's one of the most important pieces of knowledge for anyone's long-term financial success so we already talked about how we recommend people invest their money. So we talked about the Vanguard, the three funds, Boglehead. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also key that we look at the biggest expenses that someone tends to have in life, right? So the biggest expenses are typically buying a house, buying a car, going to college, paying your taxes, and healthcare and medical expenses. Like those are the big five. And when I'm thinking about the future, that all five of those could change dramatically in the next 10 years. Yep. So maybe we should just talk about them one at a time. Okay. And maybe a good place to start would be taxes because we just had tax day. <laughs> and first of all, let me say that everyone should get married because I paid <laughs> basically half of what I paid last year in taxes because it's, it is very uh, beneficial to be filing jointly, at least, at least in my case. Um, mm-hmm. But something else that I'll say is that a lot of people complain about how complicated taxes are, and for good reason, because in most other countries, if you go to Australia, England, other countries, they don't even know what tax day is like they couldn't tell you what day of the year is tax day because it's not a big event people basically pay taxes like how you would pay your credit card bill 
Like it's already all the information is pre-populated and you look it over and you click submit and it's that simple. But in the US, it, it's incredibly complicated. And the reason seems to be that the tax lobby wants it to be complicated. And there's yeah. a really interesting story that I hadn't learned about until I listened to this Planet Money podcast where this guy realized that you could vastly simplify the tax system if you just implemented something that he calls ready return, where basically you can just, you just get, everything's pre-filled out and then you just submit it. Because the government knows what you earned. They know what your expenses are. So why do they have to ask you to fill it all out and then be freaked out that if you do it improperly, you'll go to jail? It's like the most backwards possible system. So this actually made it to the House it made it and it and it lost in the Senate by one vote. If this one vote had gone the the way in favor of ready return, no one would be freaking out over their taxes anymore. People it would just be like a very straightforward affair. And the reason is that the tax lobby, especially Intuit, which owns TurboTax, strongly advocated against it because you know that their business basically goes downhill if it basically disappears if anyone yeah. can just file their taxes jointly and there was also a bill subsequent to that where the IRS was going to have just an online web page where you could submit your taxes rather than having to go through TurboTax or H&R Block and mm-hmm. that also did not pass Congress and it's simply because the lobbyists just want to make an extra buck by making it a little more complicated so people need to pay for expert help and it's so yeah. frustrating. Yeah, the stuff like that is one of the most frustrating things about living in the U.S. is how much power that these sorts of companies have over policy. Yeah. Um, but I mean, think of so if you really think about how many jobs would be lost, it's kind of almost hysterical that we don't need all of those jobs. It's almost like they're yeah. they're technically bullshit jobs. They are. Yeah. Get, because they're not adding any value. Like we could have software running this whole thing because a vast majority of the IRS would probably go under. I mean, there would still be tax law and, and um, lawyers, but the whole, all the accountants, the CPAs, all of, all of those jobs, or at least a vast majority of those jobs could just disappear. Not just yeah. companies like Intuit and TurboTax, but like the whole industry surrounding taxes, which yeah. is huge. Um, so that would be, that's probably and this, this gets into America's obsession with jobs as opposed to doing things in the most efficient way that will grow the real economy, not just like bolster it with needless jobs that people don't really tend to enjoy anyways. Yeah. We should talk about that. And in, in when we talk about the economy for sure. Yeah. So as far as the future of taxes, I think it's quite likely that there is major tax. I mean, if in the next 10 years we don't come to some programmatic way of filing taxes, then I don't think there's much hope for the rest. (laughs) Like it's such a simple issue that if we can't wrap our heads around this, I have very little hope for the rest of the U S economic sectors. Oh, definitely. 
So what are your thoughts on stuff like um, savings, credit cards? Obviously, we have these big expenses like college, homes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, what What do right. you think in terms, like, how do people pay for them? Especially, like, student loans is a big one for me. It's, uh-huh. it's one of those where people spend potentially hundreds of thousands to go to college for a degree that isn't necessarily going to earn them right enough money to pay that off well this this really gets into the role of college and that's something i wanted to discuss because on the one hand you could say the role of college is to get people a job train them for the skills they're going to need for a job they can actually do that will actually provide value earn them money and allow them to support their family yet another way to think about college is that it's a way of freeing your mind and the actual yep. term, like a liberal arts education, liberal comes from the Latin libertas libertatis, meaning freedom. Mm. And it's about freeing your mind. And I think this notion of freeing your mind is going to be so crucial once we get beyond the automation phase. And once mm-hmm. people, once a vast majority of people aren't able to contribute to the economy, then having yeah. a, a liberated mind where they can, they actually have more understanding of what matters in life and they can Mm -hmm. pursue what's most important to them. That's going to be incredibly important. And I think college does a fairly good job of that, especially because a lot of college is about interacting with your peers and social interactions. And a lot of it's even more about that than necessarily like what you learn in your classes. Mm -hmm. But on the job preparation side, I think colleges are doing a, a pretty terrible job compared to modern work. I mean, yeah. if you look at something like Lambda School, which is much better financial way of paying for college. So what is that? I actually haven't um, heard of that. Oh, dude, just for so, listeners. So Lambda School is this new type of, it's not really to replace college, but it's something that sort of augments it. So it trains people to be developers and they have a really innovative Mm. business model. So essentially you actually can get a stipend while you attend Lambda school. They will pay you $2,000 a month while you're attending Lambda school. Wow. And then afterwards you just guarantee something like 10 to 15% of your income for the first couple of years after you graduate Lambda school. And if you, can't get a job or you get a really low paying job, then you barely have to pay anything back to Lambda school. But if you Mm -hmm. get a high paying job, then Lambda school makes money. So it really aligns the incentives of the school with the student because both are just uh, fully aligned on job preparedness, getting the highest possible salary right after. And Hmm. it's had incredible results. I mean, I follow some of the the guy who started Lambda School, and he's always posting like people who were previously making like 10, 10 bucks an hour, and then they went to Lambda School, and now they're making like, you know, 200K right out of wow. school. And it just shows that if you really focus on job preparedness for a modern job, like being a web developer, being a mobile developer, being a UX, UI designer, being you know a systems architect 
Like yeah. any of these jobs that are really in demand, but there's not a whole lot of supply of them because colleges haven't caught up to the times. Mm-hmm. That's just better for the overall economy. And as I look into the future, I could seriously see a lot of the current colleges getting disrupted. And I think that the, yeah. the main top tier are going to st- stick around because of the liberating the mind and social connections and network and that kind of thing. But for the colleges that right now are marketing themselves as job preparedness, but they still have bloated prices and they're, they haven't really caught up to the times, I could see a lot of those getting disrupted by newcomers like Lambda School and the nature of education really changing and actually becoming far less of an expense that most yeah. people have to pay. I mean, if you think about how much it is now, it's, it's incredible how much college costs, like, what, like mm-hmm. 50 grand a year? For yeah, college. if you're going, especially if you're going to a private school or an out-of-state school, like yeah. it, it's stupid. Um, that's really cool, though, about the Lambda School. It, it's almost, I mean, you can think of even this personal finance conversation in terms of investing. You're investing some time, you're getting some money up front, and then you get some return later, like a good job, mm-hmm. or, or, and then you have to pay a little bit of interest on that, like 10% of your salary. Like yeah. all of all of these decisions can still be boiled down to investing. You're just investing different things. Like you're time. investing in the person. You're like buying yeah. shares in their future. Yeah, that's what Lambda School is doing for sure. Yeah. And then as the student going, you're just investing some time and brain power to your future. And everything about personal finance is about like how do you make that trade off between right now and where you want to be in the future and what your goals of the future are Mm -hmm. because not everybody has the same goals maybe some people are super frugal or live in a lower cost of living area or live in a higher cost of living area so that changes how you want to budget and what you need to do but i think there are still some basic principles that you need like that anybody can take away from this conversation like building credit with a credit card for example Mm -hmm. but not going into credit card debt i don't i think nobody should go into credit card well okay i I hate to say nobody but there's there's a time and a place to you shouldn't passively go into credit card debt if you go into it you should knowingly be like okay i'm gonna put down ten thousand dollars on my credit card so i can invest in the business because i know in a few months that'll allow me to produce more than $10,000. Like that's when you go into credit card debt, not because you had a shopping spree and you weren't paying close enough attention. Yeah, I guess that's that's the thing too that I, I feel like, a, so one of the stats I saw is uh, 60% of millennials couldn't cover a $1,000 emergency purchase. Oh, I've, I've read even greater stats. That's like even a $500 most. Really? Not even just millennials, but most, Americans could yeah. not cover a $500 bill. Yeah, and, and that's it's... one of the things with personal finance that you, I think everybody needs to have at least a little bit of a an emergency fund. It doesn't necessarily need to be invested. I also don't necessarily think a checking account is the best place. Like there are places where you can earn safe, low returns on the money you have. I think yeah, Wealthfront like the... even has a cash, a cash account. Um, yeah. I mean, even in a Vanguard fund, like you can withdraw at any time with no penalty. Even if you have a Roth IRA, which is a retirement fund, 
you can withdraw yeah. at any time, no penalty. And everyone should be maxing out their Roth IRA every single year because it's yeah. idiotic not to. You make, you'll be a millionaire by the time you're retired, guaranteed. Yeah, and, and base, maybe to give an overview of IRAs is you can contribute now in 2019. The limit is $6,000 a year for IRAs. Uh-huh. There are traditional IRAs. There are Roth IRAs. A Roth yeah. IRA basically means you pay taxes on the money that you invest. So if I put $6,000 to my Roth IRA this year, I'm paying taxes on those $6,000. But when I withdraw that money 40 years later, then I don't have to pay taxes on any of those gains. Mm-hmm. And if I had a somewhat decent investment, let's say, let's say I have it in an investment that's making 5% a year for that term, that's going to double in price once or twice yet i'm not paying taxes on any of those gains i only paid on what was put in so it's really good for young for young people especially yeah the roth ira and a good Um, rule of thumb is that if you expect to earn more in the future like if especially if you're a young person and you think okay i'm making this amount now i'll probably make more in the future then you should get a roth ira if you're thinking, okay, I'm making this much now, I'm probably not going to make more than that in my career, this is the peak, then you should probably get a traditional IRA. Mm. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of different things. You can also be maxing out your 401ks, like all of these things, if you have an employer that'll match a little bit, like that's mm-hmm. that's some money that's essentially free if, if your employer matches. So there's, there's a lot of things that um, people can do. This is kind of, again, in the... Um, investing discussion yeah but but it's also for personal finance reasons too like you can use some of these things as an emergency fund I think there are fees to withdraw early but I mean either way there's something that you have going for you you're building a little bit of a a safe um, a safe fund or a rainy day fund all right so now let's touch on some of the other big life expenses like buying a car and buying a home because I could see both of those changing significantly in the future. Yeah. I mean, especially if you live in cities, big cities. Um, well, I guess it depends on how dense the city is. Maybe LA isn't the place for this, but if you live in a city like New York, you can get by without owning a car for your entire life. Um, Yeah. Well, I've, I've, I've heard Kara Swisher say that in the future, like when our kids grow up, owning a car is going to be as quaint as owning a horse is now. <laughs> because if you can just yeah. on demand summon a self-driving car to your door at any given time, then why would you mm-hmm. own a car that's just going to sit idle for yeah. most hours of the day? Yep. Yeah, I mean, you could treat it essentially, you should spend as much money on it like proportional to how much time you spend in this car i mean i I know some people are huge car fanatics and i understand that i understand that if you have a bunch of money and you want a really cool sports car to show off man when those pistons start firing a little (laughs) tear comes to my eye (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i i mean it doesn't even make sense or it doesn't only make sense in the far farther future you know a couple decades 
Um, oh, I wouldn't buy a car today. Unless yeah, it was I mean, a it Tesla. depends on. Yeah, it depends on where it is too. If you're living in like rural Wyoming or something, in the right, right. The, but the, even if I was living location. in rural Wyoming, I think it makes far more sense to buy a Tesla Model Three that has software updates that will keep pace mm-hmm. with self-driving technology as it progresses, as opposed yeah. to buying something that is based almost certainly going to be outdated in like five years Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i I totally see that kind of i I see that cost being more of a rent rather than an own um yeah well there was just this analysis that said that teslas may be the only car in history to appreciate in value to actually go up in value relative to the rest of the market as self-driving technology gets better because uh, most other, most other cars are like, you know, as soon as you drive it off the lot, it's lost 30% of its value or something crazy. And then it yeah. just keeps going down from there. And I guess with Tesla, since you do have those software updates, it is it is actually getting better yeah. as time goes on. That's really interesting. Um, so what are your thoughts on how home purchases will change or just living quarters, yeah. obviously? Well, I think that most people are mistaken about the idea of homeownership. They think homeownership and the whole idea of homeownership as being part of the American dream is -hmm. derived from this Fannie Mae advertising campaign in the 70s. Like that's literally where the term American dream was first Mm. uh, put out into the public sphere. Wow. And so everyone bought into this idea of, okay, you buy a home, you get a two, you know, you got to have two kids, you get a white picket fence, you got two cars in the driveway. This is the American yeah. dream. And the, the argument was, oh, if you're renting, then you're just throwing money away. You're just burning money because it's not actually going into an investment, a mortgage. Whereas if you're buying a home, you're putting money into something that is going to increase in value and then you can have a big payoff when you sell your house. However, that doesn't take into account the other ways that you could invest your money. That's basically saying, okay, are you going to just not save any money or are you going to put money into a mortgage? But if Mm -hmm. you actually look at what would happen if you put your money into, let's say, index funds, like we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, versus into a home, it's, it's... uh, the numbers show that you're far better off putting it into investment funds because it's less yep. volatile. Mm-hmm. You're not competing with every real estate mogul out there who's doing all these things that any individual homeowner just cannot do as effectively. You're not paying mm-hmm. for all the expenses of when there's a leak in your house, when there's when there's yep. uh, mold like all of these unexpected expenses that can be huge and the other thing is your money is completely tied up it's not liquid so if you have let's say a medical emergency or something big happens in your life you lose your job or you have a new kid and you have more expenses you can't just sell your house immediately you have to take into account okay what are the market conditions what sort of capital gains taxes am I going to have to pay? 
will this continue yeah. to appreciate in the future? Whereas if you have your money in index funds, whenever you need money, you can just take it out with basically no penalty. And mm -hmm. just it's a much less stressful life. <laughs> like really yeah. the only argument that I can see for owning a home is if you really just want to grow roots and you you want control over your future like you don't want to have to move houses if your landlord kicks you out mm -hmm. like you really want this to be the home where your kids grow up and then your grandkids grow up like that's the yeah. only real argument i can see for owning a home as opposed to renting yeah i mean i totally agree i, I think that um everyone you know especially at this age when it's kind of to the point of you know right now I'm engaged so like everyone's asking when are you gonna get a house you know when are you gonna put a down payment but like I don't plan to like I don't I don't really want to I guess the other reason to to buy a house would be if the rentals in the area just kind of suck mm -hmm. I mean it just depends on where you live maybe well also if just... you could buy your house outright with cash it's a different story than if you're paying a mortgage with interest and yeah i think people also underestimate how much a mortgage actually costs mm -hmm. i think i think on average with a 30-year mortgage with current interest rates and you just pay everything on time the way you're supposed to you're paying almost double the value of the home over those yeah. 30 years because of the interest james altucher does this analysis in his book and the amount of money that you lose by having a mortgage as opposed to investing in index funds is mm -hmm. the amount of money you need to retire. So a lot of people that bought into this idea of you must own a home and they pay a mortgage and there's all these unforeseen expenses. Now they're at retirement age and they're having a really tough time because mm -hmm. they don't have the nest egg that they thought they had. And if then they decide to sell their home, there's these huge capital gains taxes and they don't have as much as they thought they did. Mm -hmm. And it's just, a, it really is uh, vicious for most individual people. Now, if you're a real estate mogul and you're really savvy, you can make, have some huge wins. I mean, more fortunes have been made in real estate than any mm -hmm. other sector in the entire economy. But if you're an individual, it's probably a good idea to rent and invest your money in index funds. Yeah. Yeah, and if you want to be exposed to real estate investments, maybe invest in a real estate investment trust or a re yeah, REIT. Exactly. Um, and that that might be a way to get you know similar returns as if you were owning one, but you're also not tied down to a single market because if you're diversified across cities and states, then the returns are a little bit more stable than if even if you were you wanted to buy an investment property, mm -hmm. you still are really, I mean, you're almost absolutely correlated with the local market, um, which could be good or it could be terrible. It just depends. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And then the, the last big expense, and then we can get into the more commercial side of finance, is medical expenses. And mm -hmm. I feel pretty hopeful in this area because it seems like there's so much momentum moving towards some sort of universal healthcare in America where we can catch up with the rest of the industrialized world and give people some safety net so that they don't go bankrupt whenever they get in a car crash. And it's incredible 
how many people go bankrupt in the U.S. each year as a result of medical expenses. Mm-hmm. And just overall, the more I look into finance, the future of finance, and the more I've been prepping for this episode, I really think everything boils down to America not investing in its citizens, not investing mm-hmm. in the future of its society, and instead just trying to extract value from the citizens for selfish yeah. reasons. Like, or it, the lobbyists can influence policy that makes it... The, it's know, the it, whole system. It's the yeah. lobbyists, the senators, the... You know, but if, if we had the mindset of, hey, let's invest in the long run, you know, kind of like how China thinks, and they think, okay, we're going to invest in education. We're going to make sure every kid has a good education, has enough healthy food to eat, has medical expenses covered. If you just did those three things, then 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, 30 years down the line, the whole society is going to be so much healthier than if you just focus on, okay, we need to cut education spending so we can put more into the military industrial mm-hmm. complex. And mm-hmm. we're not going to give people free health care because that's un-American. And <laughs> it's like, it's so idiotic, but it's, uh, you know, people just get stuck in their ways. And because we've been kind of doing it this way, where it's kind of like, screw everyone else. I'm looking out for number one. It's kind of like the uh-huh. American uh, yeah. ethos. Mm-hmm. Then you just get used to that and you start, you stop looking at it as something that's that's sick or wrong and you just see it as like, oh, that's the American way of doing things. Yeah. I mean, it's the healthcare thing is particularly frustrating to me because the costs associated with, especially the basic healthcare are way more than they should be. And this, you know, this goes into the whole conversation about insurance and that whole thing. Um, the future of healthcare was actually a good episode where we talked about some of this. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, if we can solve and, you know, stop being so dumb as a country and as, you know, lawmakers, this expense is going to basically be gone for the vast majority of right. people unless you wanted some sort of um, like, like the fancy schmancy doctor. Yeah. Yeah. You can with I think that's one people that a lot of people don't realize. Like if we have universal healthcare, there will still be insurance if you wanted yeah. your own like super, like you said, fancy smancy uh, doctor. Concierge service. Yeah, exactly. Or if you want stuff like plastic surgery, like kind of the, the frivolous parts right, of right. Uh, medical care. But for the most part, we don't need that expense and that the basic expenses are what's killing a lot of people and putting a lot of people into debt. Yeah. It's kind of like, look, if you're in a war and your soldier gets shot in the leg, you should just fix that soldier's leg for free. So the soldier can continue to fight for you. You don't say like, Oh, well, do you have enough money to fix your own leg? I'm not going to help you because that'll lead to, you're going to lose the war in the long run. And we should think about our citizens as like economic soldiers for the country where they in aggregate create the health of the society and of the economy. Yeah. No, I mean, I totally agree. And, and that's, this is just, it's one of those areas where a lot of the world is doing it right. And we just, you know, I think maybe we just need a little bit of time before 
we realize like, oh, we're stupid for a long time. <laughs> um, yeah. Cool. So what are your thoughts on maybe the, um, I know the next, the next topic we were going to talk about is future of commercial finance and how to maybe start a business. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is a high growth area, meaning a lot has been changing over the last several years. And the biggest change has been in equity crowdfunding. So yeah. we've had crowdfunding for a while, meaning you can go on Kickstarter, you can go on Indiegogo, you can say, hey, I have this new idea for this intelligent bicycle helmet that mm -hmm. can, you know, whatever. And then you can get it funded and you basically give perks to the people who funded you and say, okay, you'll be one of the first people to get this smart bike helmet if you give me 150 bucks or whatever it is. Uh -huh. And now there is a new type of crowdfunding called equity crowdfunding. My sister yep. actually works for one of these companies called Start Engine. And it's the same sort of idea as regular crowdfunding, except you're actually buying shares in the company. Right. So, for instance, Oculus Rift raised millions of dollars on Kickstarter. But once Oculus got sold to Facebook for more than a billion dollars, none of those Kickstarter investors made anything they yeah. and a lot of them were pissed they were like oh so we funded this new vision of the future because we believe in you guys and then you go ahead and turn around and sell your company to facebook make all this money and then we're left in the dust and it's just another behemoth that doesn't necessarily have the same values that we were being sold mm -hmm. when we initially invested in oculus yeah. And so equity crowdfunding gets around that by actually giving shares to the people. And the big legal change is that you know you don't have to be an accredited investor. Yep. You can be a regular investor who makes a regular salary and isn't some big shot. So yeah. I can see this becoming much more prominent in the future. I mean, we saw just a couple of recent examples when the Notre Dame Cathedral burned down mm -hmm. over... A, what was it like a billion dollars in a couple of days? I think it is over a billion dollars. Over a billion dollars of people donated to fix it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's that's awesome. And or like Trump tried to fund the border wall with crowdfunding, and really? it made you know there was a decent chunk of investors who put money into that, and so I could see this as a vehicle not only for private sector companies, but it looks like it could happen in the public sector with governments too. Interesting. Honestly, I mean, I don't, if people want to make the choice of where their money goes, awesome. Is I just, I have a hard time when the government wants to spend money in ways that I totally disagree with. Yeah. But if it is more this crowdfunding way, you know, that's a, it's actually really interesting to think about. Yeah. And, and then as far as like anyone who's listening to this, who might be thinking of starting a company Bootstrapping is always the best way to start off because yeah. you can keep total control of your company and bootstrapping is essentially you just put in your own money and then as your company starts to gain revenue, you reinvest that revenue into the company and you sort of pull your company up by your own bootstraps. Yeah. And, but if you have some bigger vision, something that requires significant investment and it's not something that you're able to pull together yourself or with friends and family, then you might want to look into venture capital. And one thing that I've been noticing is that 
there has been an explosion in VC firms relative to the number of actual entrepreneurs. So there is a lot of VC money available nowadays, and there actually seems to be more of a shortage of entrepreneurs relative to how many VCs there are looking to fund the next big idea. Yeah, and to kind of go full circle on this, if you are if you make intelligent decisions related to investing and personal finance, you're in a better position later down the road if you have a business idea to take that risk and to start something. Yeah. And totally. so just just investing in the long term um, through index funds or something like that, that gives you the freedom to make riskier decisions like starting a company. Um, and then that can have an insane payoff if you can do it right. Yeah. So it's it's all related. Finance, like all of these different decisions you make, whether you're investing your time, your energy, you know, anything, it, yeah. it all pays dividends down the line if you do it correctly and you you kind of understand the idea of opportunity costs, like you were talking about with mm -hmm. real estate and buying um, versus renting. Yeah, and the key for that for me has been to just automate everything so you don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Justin and I both invest a small amount of money each week into Hence the Future. Pretty much happens automatically. Likewise, I automatically invest a certain amount into my index funds every month. And likewise, I invest a certain amount into my Robinhood funds every month. Mm -hmm. And then I also put a little bit into savings. But mm -hmm. I basically automated everything. So I never have to worry about a single thing. All I do is like every once in a while, I'll check to make sure everything's going smoothly. But mm -hmm. rarely do I have to actually make any changes. And this is something that any individual person was not able to do in the past. I mean, you'd have to hire brokers and all of these middlemen to have that kind of a system in place. Now mm -hmm. you can just get like whatever your bank is, you know, Wells Fargo or Chase, Vanguard, Robinhood, and that's basically all you need. And then you're set. You can just set yep. it and forget it. Yeah, and that's good too because um, I, I was uh, listening to a book. I actually forgot. It, it, it's been a while, but basically the – one of the takeaways was that people that just forgot about their investments yeah. did way did better. better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they just kind of forgot about these little, these little investments that they had from decades ago and yeah. they're, you know, doing great. Right. Cool. Well, I'd like to talk now about some of the disruptive technologies. Mm. Like I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, how big of a role you think cryptocurrency is going to play in the future? How big of a role you think blockchain is going to play in the future? Yeah. So cryptocurrency, I, at least in its current form, I'm highly skeptical because of how unstable it is. And kind of like I was saying earlier, it doesn't really have intrinsic value or it's not backed by anything or not stabilized by anything. It's just kind of at the whims of whatever, um, mining process is taking place and what the flow of these these cryptocurrencies are. So anyone that, you know, all the companies that accepted Bitcoin during its boom lost a bunch of money because of the, un, the instability of the currency itself. So there needs to be some sort of stabilizing factor. 
but I do see a point where, for example, the U.S. dollar is technically a cryptocurrency. There isn't like physical money, and yeah. it's being circulated electronically. Even if, and it, I think um, storing the transactions through a blockchain might be a good way to make sure that it's it, it's unfalsifiable and that there's always yeah. a path to see how these transactions are taking place. Um, that would potentially be good in terms of just reducing the amount of money laundering because you can actually track these expenses and right. um, there you know there's there will be a lot of things that change because of a crypto a purely cryptocurrency economy um, like the fact that no one can be paid in cash so any that would make it really hard on illegal citizens or I think that was a oxymoron. Illegal citizens, illegal <laughs> um, immigrants. Yeah. Um, but well, I think it's useful also to sort of take a step back at how does cryptocurrency compare to other forms of currency that we've had. And mm -hmm. essentially, we had barter for the first portion of human civilization. I'll give you a pig. You give me a horse. And yeah. it's probably not a fair trade, but <laughs> two pigs, <laughs> two pigs, one horse. Um, and then after that, we had the gold standard. So we actually had the denarii in Rome that was back, you know, it was essentially had 8% gold in each coin. And that was some of the most prosperous period of civilization was when currency was backed by gold because mm -hmm. people, essentially you would have this big vault of the central bank that had all of this gold and all of the money was directly correlated to the gold in the bank. So people had a lot of trust in this form of currency. But eventually, there was so much economic growth that the gold couldn't keep up. And so then they had to transition to fiat currency, which comes from the mm -hmm. Latin, which means to become or yep. to actualize. So basically, it's like at will currency, meaning I am the government and I state that this currency is worth such and such. So it's yeah. not actually tied to any gold standard or anything but it's just decreed by the people who are have the most authority and yeah. this led to a lot of instability in europe a lot of people think that's what led to world war ii partially and now we're at the point where less than three percent of all money in circulation is actually cash most of it's just digital it's in bank accounts like yeah. you can't actually withdraw anything close to the amount of money that you actually see in the total financial markets. It's only a small mm -hmm. portion of it that's cash. And mm -hmm. the reason why Bitcoin was so appealing or is, is still appealing yeah. to yeah. so many people is that it's similar to the gold standard where there's a limited supply. Like there's never going to be more than 24 million Bitcoin ever. That's mm -hmm. just the limit. And yeah. as you go through the mining process, it gets harder and harder to extract these Bitcoin. Similar to how with gold, it gets harder and harder to extract gold the more that you extract because you got to dig even deeper. Mm -hmm. So it very much mimics the gold standard system. So a lot of people were really excited about this possibility. And like you said, it also leverages the blockchain, meaning you don't need some central bank that decrees you know, what something is or isn't worth. Instead, it's all peer to peer. 
there's a blockchain, there's a ledger, anyone can see transactions, verify them. You don't need some big central power getting in the way and typically they screw things up because they have their own agenda. Yeah. But the problem yeah. that you noted is that Bitcoin became much greater as speculation than as actually using it. Because if you think Bitcoin is going to go up a couple thousand dollars next month, why the hell would you buy something with your Bitcoin? That's like idiotic. You should just wait yeah. and store it. So until there's like real stability with the currency and people know that it's pretty much going to cost the same this month as the next month as it is next year, no one's going to actually use it for real transactions or a very small portion of people will do that. Yeah. And until it's a mainstream currency for transactions, I, th I don't think it'll be um, really viable at all. But it also needs to be, like we said, the, it needs to be stable first. But to kind of talk more about blockchain and not cryptocurrencies and how it relates to finance, I think it has the potential to make markets more efficient. Because if, if we use blockchain more as a way to make sure that there is good information and everybody has access to good information, um, then the markets can become more efficient. So if we can see transaction histories of various people, we can kind of get a better idea of what's actually going on in the market. Yeah. And everybody can get a better sense of what's going on in the market. Because there ten we tend to focus on the fact that there's a... Um, financial discrepancy. So some people are wealthier than others. But what kind of gets overlooked is there's also an information discrepancy. Mm. So the people with more money can afford better information and they have access to more information. Mm -hmm. So um, if we can democratize the information, then it's better for everybody to, yeah. um, I and mean, even... And it may be a way for us to get out of these cycles of boom and bust that are constantly occurring mm -hmm. because basically you've got the Federal Reserve that's pulling this lever of interest rates, lowering interest rates when we want to see more growth, raising mm -hmm. interest rates when we're getting maybe a little too much growth and going towards a bubble. But mm -hmm. all of this like pulling and pushing of the lever is artificial and no Federal Reserve, no matter how smart they are is going to have total market information it's always going to be doing something a little bit less than what's ideal and if yeah. instead you have a decentralized system where everyone can essentially trade with anyone else with without needing a middleman then that's mm -hmm. much more in line with what the real market forces are and it may more accurately align the prices uh, with the actual supply and just the overall yeah. economic efficiency yeah, and if information is out there more quickly, then the feedback of certain decisions in the the economy, um, we can get information about those decisions more quickly and feedback mm -hmm. about them. And if we have feed, if we have quicker feedback, we can make adjustments more quickly. And this is just, I mean, kind of like you were saying, it it would probably tighten the cycles and lessen the the amplitude of these these depressions and these bubbles um, over time. Yeah. So I guess a question I have for you is, how would you predict the future of crypto 10 years from now? Because it's funny, Warren Buffett made a bet with this journalist uh -huh. about 
how what percentage of people would be would have made even a single crypto transaction in the last month and warren buffett thought that by 2018 he made the bet five years ago there would be at least 10 percent of people would have made a single transaction in the past month but uh-huh. it turns out it's like less than three percent of people have made even one transaction but a lot could change in the next 10 years so I guess my question to you is, do you think that 10 years from now, there will be at least 10% of people that have made a tran- Bitcoin tran- or just any sort of crypto transaction in the last month? Or do you think it's going to progress at a slower pace than that? I think it'll progress at a slower pace, probably. So the, the issue with blockchain in particular, as as a backing of a cryptocurrency, is that Every single person that has, for example, a Bitcoin wallet has the copy of the ledger, which means that every single Bitcoin wallet has the information of every transaction of every Bitcoin Mm -hmm. or every Bitcoin transaction ever. This is super data inefficient and super computationally, super computationally expensive. So there needs to be better ways to kind of have these these sub chains i think there i forgot what the um the term in blockchain research is maybe it's sharding um something something where not everybody has the whole um ledger and and mm. i guess i think i actually think there might have been some advancements maybe with blockchain you don't have the whole ledger but only back to a certain point but everybody has some version of the database Right. Uh, which can which can be um, inefficient, but I think uh, there there are I mean with all the research going on, there's going to be ways to get around this. Um, and yeah. I also think like one of, so one of the guys um, that I'm uh, that started the hedge fund with me, he's actually like the the main guy Zach. He actually thinks he's he's kind of in the same boat where he thinks that cryptocurrency is you know a little bit. Uh, it's not going to work out in its current form. Um, But he thinks there might be a place for like an, an index backed or a market backed cryptocurrency. That's, that's what I think too. I think it's going to be, you're going to need some big institutions to back a cryptocurrency before people are willing to accept it. Like imagine if JP Morgan Chase came out with their own cryptocurrency. Like I know Facebook is coming out with their cryptocurrency. Imagine if Amazon came out with theirs, all of a sudden, it seems much more legit once you have one of these big companies backing it. Um, and if we can get over some of those other issues, like the data inefficiencies, I know the computational, like the energy expenditure in order to buy, to mine these Bitcoin has also been really great. So mm-hmm. if we can overcome some of those, then I think it'll be much more widespread. I mean, one of the best arguments I've heard for why it may become more prominent over time is simply because there's much lower transaction fees. Like if you're an uh-huh. e-commerce company and someone pays with Bitcoin, you have to pay less as transaction fees than you would if they paid in credit card or with dollars because it's mm-hmm. essentially decentralized. You don't have to pay all of these like tariffs and taxes in the same way. But you know that also may change with more regulations and more developments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that that makes a lot of sense. And so, I, I might have uh, miss. I mean that 
that would be really good to have like companies that support the blockchain. Uh, what what I was saying though is that the blockchain would actually so like currency is backed by gold or you know mm-hmm. theoretically backed by gold to some extent, but um, maybe a cryptocurrency could be backed by an ETF or like the index, like the actual stocks in the um, market. So it's like you have a mar- almost like an index fund that's backing the cryptocurrency. Hmm. Um, so there's some sort of value. There's actual value to each of the um, tokens or units of currency right. uh, behind it. So that you know, that's yeah. I think all of these things need to take place before we can have right. a, a solid cryptocurrency. Anyways, we could we could talk about crypto all day, and we should yeah, probably we should make do, that a podcast. Yeah, we should make our own episode around that. But I think now would be a good time to take a quick break and then get into the future scenarios. All right, Justin, what do you think is the worst case scenario for the future of finance? Worst case scenario. Yeah, so I think um, there's there's several facets to a worst case, but one of the things, one of the themes that came up a lot in this conversation is when policymakers make decisions that make money, personal finance, investing harder for the individual. So things like not solving the healthcare issue or some other sorts of um, policies that make it so expenses for individuals are uh, pretty high. And especially if the income is going to drop for people at some point in the future and there's nothing to cover the basic expenses, um, then, you know, like a, a universal income, then I think that would be one of the facets of uh, the worst case scenario. Um, then I think if people don't have money, this will lead to people not investing at all. People with um, basically only people that have a bunch of money are able to invest in anything. Um, so nobody, nobody in the bottom tiers of society can really invest in their future. Um, and I think that bottom tier of society could potentially grow drastically. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this would lead to insane inequality, um, basically a, an exaggeration of where we are now if things don't get fixed. Um, right. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, it's pretty terrifying when you look at the charts of what the economic indicators are now as opposed to what they were in some of the worst periods in history like the 1930s before Hitler rose to power and there's a lot of similarities and I would recommend that anyone go read Ray Dalio's report on LinkedIn Um, Mm. but anyways some of these charts are just incredible like the level of income inequality that we're experiencing now is very similar to what there was in the 1930s and that's basically a result of whenever there's an economic crisis the government is buying financial assets and it's this Mm -hmm. trickle-down approach but what ends up happening is that the people who already own assets become better and better off and they end up investing their money in financial markets rather than actually spending it and getting it into circulation among workers, goods and services. And it becomes this 
huge, big, like speculative, speculative financial pie with very little going to the actual producers of, of goods and services. And mm-hmm. I, I already touched on this a little bit, but I think the, the core problem and what will create the worst case scenario is the fact that we're not investing in society. We're not willing to put money into the education of our kids. We're not willing to put money into healthcare. We're not willing to make the tax system more efficient and Mm -hmm. we're not willing to put money into education. So when you combine all of those things, what are you going to have? You're going to have an uneducated, poor population that's more vulnerable to manipulation and misinformation. And you're going to have people that once they have one crisis, like a medical crisis or losing their job as a result of automation, then they get into this downward spiral. And Mm -hmm. it's like the people who are at the top keep doing better and better. And the people at the bottom keep doing worse and worse. But over time, like you said, the bottom portion gets much bigger. And when you think about how this could come to a head, there's a lot of indicators that say that the greater inequality you have when a crisis occurs, when a recession occurs, the greater the chance there is for armed conflict. Mm. And I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. So my worst case scenario is a scenario where there's so much inequality and then we hit a recession because as Ray Dalio has said, we are near the end of the 75 year long-term debt cycle. Mm -hmm. And we're also near the end of the five to seven year short-term debt cycle. Meaning times have been relatively good for a long time. And the indicators are pointing towards times not being that good now and into the future. Mm -hmm. While this is happening, there's a greater level of political polarization than we've ever had since the 1930s. It was a similar level of polarization right when Hitler was rising to power. And so if there's this big recession and a lot of people, the vast majority of people don't have money, they don't have a safety net and the government's not paying for their medical expenses or education or housing or anything like that, then it stands to reason that those people will get up in arms and either they're going to want to fight each other or, you know, maybe overthrow the government and maybe get rid of the American democracy and put in place either fascism or socialism, depending on if it's the right or the left, and both of them can be terrible. Mm -hmm. Or it'll be redirected towards some exterior enemy, like China or, you know, Russia or something. And this is basically what happened in Germany in the 1930s, where they had the they had just come to the end of the long-term debt cycle and the end of the short-term debt cycle and there was huge income inequality and rather than addressing the underlying reasons which is that they printed too much money and they didn't have good fundamentals they instead mm-hmm. scapegoated the jews and they directed all their anger at them and then it drew the whole world into a world war and i'm not saying this is the most likely but yeah. it's pretty scary when you just look at the raw numbers and the indicators. And mm-hmm. so my worst case scenario is as a result of all of these forces, 
either America becomes undemocratic and or there's armed conflict in the form of World War Three. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a that's definitely a, a worst case scenario. Um, what, do, what do you think for the best case to scenario? Best case scenario. Yeah. So my best case scenario is we actually respond in the appropriate way to fix some of these. And that includes leadership from the top. So having a bipartisan Congress that actually is focused on investing in citizens in the long run, putting aside political differences, actually getting their shit together and fixing the healthcare system, fixing the tax system, fixing the education system. Mm -hmm. Also, I think it's going to be super important to have clear metrics for success, not just GDP, which is like, pretty bogus metric as far as happiness and well-being is concerned yeah but real metrics that also take into account things like pollution and when i was thinking about this i really think that in the long run it's going to be necessary for the u.s to come up with something similar to china's social credit system so china's social credit score takes into account everything someone does online, everything someone does in the real world, how good they are at paying people back, how much they're trolling others, how much they take care of their parents, how good Mm -hmm. of a citizen they are to their neighbor. They take all of these factors into account and they give its citizens a score. And they've basically gamified what it means to be a good citizen. And a lot of people think this is terrible because, you know, China's famously... uh, anti-freedom of speech, anti-freedom of press, and doesn't care about people's privacy. So Mm -hmm. there are some pretty bad examples of of what a world like that would look like. But Mm -hmm. if America institutes our own social credit system that codes, that encodes American values like freedom of speech, freedom of the press, privacy, Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. there will be a competing system against the Chinese system that other companies, or sorry, that other countries can emulate. And because when I'm looking at all these trends, I mean, think about the fact that you can look up anyone on LinkedIn, any company, Mm -hmm. any employee, find out who they are, come up with some messaging strategy to get them to do what you want to do, just like how you can find people on Twitter and Facebook. But it's kind of a wild west. Like there's no real rules around what is and isn't acceptable. And people's behavior towards one another isn't being taken into account. The contributions that people do, like taking care of their elderly parents or parenting, taking care of your kids or volunteering in the community, none of this is getting measured. So I think it's going to be crucial for the long-term success that America is able to measure what it means to be a good citizen and what it means to have a healthy society. And I think that's only going to be possible through some comprehensive scoring system that ideally will encode American values into that system. And I think the sooner we get something like this in place, the better yeah. we're gonna have uh, as an outcome. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that that's definitely, uh, those are all uh, good things. Um, so with my best case, one of the things that I see as an issue now is the education of people in the lower classes of society and personal finance, investing, all of this stuff. 
in the best case, I would like to see a, a good education for everybody. So this should be just one of the basic things is actually a good personal finance education. Because in high school, I had personal finance classes, and I think most people do, but it's not really that informative about how to make decisions related to money yeah. and investing. Like Everyone um, should just get like one sheet that's like, here's what you should do. Yeah, just like <laughs> you should have it. a check. Yeah, you should. It shouldn't be that complicated. Like good personal finance is not complicated. Um, you don't. I think it's better, honestly, if it's if it's uh, a little bit shorter because then you don't run into decision fatigue or anything along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the other thing that I would say is there's more flow of money between classes. So there's like. With the whole economy, there's people that are spending money in the higher classes, not just like putting it in assets. Like, for example, the a whole bunch of rich people from all over the world will just buy multi-million dollar penthouses in New York City and just leave them there. So you mm. just have all this money tied up, not doing anything, not flowing anywhere, not contributing anything. It's just there. Right. Um, nobody's even using these penthouses 90% of the time. Um, and that's just one example. There's a ton of other examples of just having a stockpile that's not being productive in any way. Um, so the flow of money is, I think, one of the things that could be improved. And in the best case, we have an optimal flow of money. So there is flow from the top to the bottom, from the bottom to the top, and just kind of all over the place. Because I don't think we're going to see a society ever where there is like a normally distributed income, where you have most people in the middle and then a little few people at the top and a few people at the bottom. It's going to look more like a lot of people at the bottom and just fewer and fewer people mm-hmm. as with more and more money. But with with good flow, I think the, the catastrophic downside of this is a little bit um, lower. One of the other things that I was thinking about when we were talking about blockchain and finance is with more information out there, we can start tracking things and putting an actual dollar amount on stuff like biodiversity and right, right. and and natural resources. Because right now we have a super we have a superficial view of what a forest is worth in the Amazon. Yeah. So, well, there are we metrics that correlate the cleanliness of the air and the cleanliness of the water with mm-hmm. mental cognitive abilities and being able to have productive output so they do have real effects they're just not being measured when they should be measured and they're not being that's not being baked into the price of cutting down so there should be it should be way more expensive for uh big developers to cut down forests and trees and all of these things because there are so many side effects and peripheral effects to this this sort of activity um so i think if we have more information out there and the better we can track things we can actually start trading assets related to biodiversity to the the size of the amazon or the size of the sahara desert even like it this could be this like natural resource and the uh, natural um finance could like explode and i think that would be really cool to see is people actually caring about the future the long-term future of these natural assets right Um, right 
Um, so that's one that we didn't really talk about previously, but it, I think it's one of those things where, you know, my, um, some of my biggest priorities in life are hoping or making sure that, um, we don't ruin the world. Yeah. Um, I hope that's something that we can accomplish with this, but, uh, anyways, and then the last thing is something like a universal basic income or right. like the freedom dividend, something like or that. Or negative to income help. tax, some people yes, call it. Something, whatever, whatever works practically yeah. on, in this giant ass country that we have, um, something needs to happen to where people can at least have the basics met. And if mm -hmm. that just starts with universal health care, awesome. That's a huge expense that people don't have to worry about anymore. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the, the big things. If people don't have to worry about that, then we can have, again, more flow of income and money um, all over the economy between everybody in the economy yeah. um, and around the world. So, yeah, I mean, th those are kind of my best case uh, scenarios. That's great. What do you think is the most likely scenario? Most likely scenario. Yeah, so I think um, I think it's my likely scenario is more towards the what is more along the lines of investing. Um, I think it's we're going to see our generation, uh, maybe Gen Z, having a harder time with investing um, because uh, especially Gen Z, when everything is instant gratification. Um, with you know right, social right. media everything is like I want it now like so what I worry is that all of the purchases or a vast majority of purchases will be driven by impulses right and short-term thinking rather than long-term thinking um, so I think that investing is going to continue to be um, it see I I think that there will be there won't be much of a change in the overall number of people um, investing. So it might look similar to what we have now, but it, I think that since the population is growing, like it's going, there's going to be a lower fraction of people in society as the older generations um, get old, you know, as they uh, die and you know leave <laughs> leave the economy. Not yeah. to be morbid, but um, I just think there will be their atoms are recycled. To create yeah, a new yeah. life. There you go. That's a better way to say it. Uh, so yeah, I just think the likely scenario is there's actually going to be less investing. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, when you think about it, like you post something on Instagram and you're constantly checking to see how many likes you got. That's mm -hmm. kind of a lot of, that's kind of how some people, especially younger investors approach stock picking where they pick a stock and then every day they're like oh is it going up is it going down should i sell should i buy more but yeah. if you just set it and forget it the three fund portfolio trust in the long term trust in history mm -hmm. then you'll be way better off but i think you're spot on that it's going to get increasingly difficult for people to take that long-term view and they're going to hurt financially for it yeah and i worry that that will bleed into the future policymakers as well right, right. That, that would be that would be pretty terrible um that then we're going to start moving more towards the worst case scenario if if 
that bleeds over into policy. I, I don't think the whole of society will be completely short term, though. I think there's enough people that are like, oh, well, maybe I should be a little bit more intelligent about how I make decisions. Yeah. So hopefully that's not an issue. Um, I unfortunately think it is maybe a little more likely that people don't invest as much unless we see this giant dip in like if we get to the dip of the hundred year debt cycle and see something like a depression um on the other side of that we'll probably there will be a ton of conservative people financially conservative people right um, the same way that after the great depression a vast majority of people would hoard all of the money they could possibly make and be, live as frugally as possible just in case something terrible did happen again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's similar to my most likely scenario where I think it's quite likely that in the next 10 years there's going to be a recession. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, how do we respond to that? Do we have what Ray Dalio calls a beautiful deleveraging? Mm-hmm. where we basically simultaneously cut spending, reduce the debt, redistribute wealth, and print money? Or are we just going to do the easy thing and try to get our way out of it by just printing money because we don't want to cut a dollar out of the military budget and we don't want to actually redistribute wealth from the haves to the have-nots? Like mm-hmm. The likely scenario is that we don't have the most beautiful averaging <laughs> <laughs> possible. Yeah. Um, and, but I, I do think to your point, I do think that that is going to lead to a much greater level of financial enlightenment after this occurs. And mm-hmm. I could see a situation where once we recover from this, like let's say in the next, let's say the next 10 years are pretty rough, but then the 10 mm-hmm. years that follow those, could be the beginning of like this golden era where we've really gotten the medical side of finance figured out. We've gotten education covered. We've, we've, uh, you know, made taxes much more efficient and easy to understand. Um, and we have some sort of freedom dividend, universal basic income or negative income tax where if you're disrupted by technology and you lose your job, you will get a thousand bucks a month or whatever. And Mm -hmm. ideally everyone would get that regardless. So it's not tied to anything because that's just the most efficient way to, to have the system. And yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of, a lot of hardship, unfortunately in the short run and medium run. But, Mm. um, you know, the only thing I could say as advice to everyone is just, Invest early and often in index funds, stay the course, and don't spend money on things that don't create value. Like, don't buy, like, the biggest, best possible VR rig and TV, (laughs) but do buy the best possible computer and, like, anything that's going to help you create value. Like, pay for, if you're considering being a developer, it's worth it to go to Lambda School and, you know be willing to give back 10% of your money or if you want to be a designer like pay the money to get a degree from Shillington and Mm -hmm. investing in yourself is always going to be a good move 
and investing in the total market is always going to be a good move. But whenever you allow your emotions to get the best of you, it's not going to have good results. Yeah, I mean, just to run run a quick little scenario for people, if we do see this giant debt crash, at uh, this the cycle come to a crash at some point, but you're invested in the long term in index funds, you and you continue to buy throughout that entire process, you're buying a lot of index funds at an extremely che- cheap price. Yeah, and in yeah. that, eventually it'll recover. I mean, unless right. everything, like you said, unless it's like a lost, the shit. worst case scenario based on history is a lost decade, meaning things can be really shitty for 10 years, but it's, it's very unlikely it'll be longer than that. So like you mm-hmm. said, if you just pretend like you don't know anything about the markets and invest the same amount each month, mm-hmm. that's going to be a recipe for success, no matter how bad it gets. Because the growth period afterwards tends to be greatly accelerated. Yes. And then the returns yes. you'll see from everything that you purchased in that that dip is going to be huge. So yeah, I mean this it's there's there's definitely an upside to if you can do the right things in a time like that, you can come out the other side unscathed and even thriving. That's a good place to end it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We're going to talk about what has happened, what is currently happening, and what will inevitably happen. The past, the present.